So we are in this series, as Andy said, called Dear Church, and we are looking at uh, seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches way back when, at the end of the first century. And we're finding already, I hope, from last week, we're finding that the letters are incredibly relevant to us. I mean, it's, it's amazing that the whole Bible is inspired by God, but to be able to read something that was specifically dictated by Jesus, that really is special. And so uh, we're in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And uh, if you want to grab a Bible, if you don't have one, there's some at the front, some at the back. If you wave your hand in the air, someone will pass you one, I'm sure. There we go. I just want to go back to last week's because um, I, I skipped a phrase. Uh, my fault, no, uh, nothing clever about it, I just missed it. Uh, but I didn't want to give the impression that it wasn't important. So let me go back to it. Basically what we've got in all of the letters is a beginning, a middle and an end. Okay, And the beginning describes Jesus and the middle, uh, Jesus is talking to the church and the end looks forward to the future of, uh, of what we have coming after this life. And so last week, there was a consistency between those three elements because Jesus is walking in the midst of his churches and he, he's praising, in many ways, the church at Ephesus. He says, you know, you're diligent, you're determined, you're discerning, all these good things. It was a really impressive church. But he said, I've got this one thing against you. You've lost or abandoned the love that you had at first, which is a really powerful, powerful verse, isn't it? And so he gave that challenge, and then he says to them, you need to remember where you've come from, remember what it was like when you first fell in love with me, and then repent, turn back, and go back to what life was like at that point, in the sense of going back to do the things that were such a part of being stimulated to respond to Christ. And then he says this, and this is something that I just completely missed until afterwards and it suddenly struck me, oh, I didn't notice that bit. I I knew in my preparation, just didn't when I was preaching. He said, if you do not repent, if you do not repent, I will come and take the lampstand away. Now we saw last week that the lampstand is referring to the church. And what he's saying there is it's so important Fellowship with me, that closeness between Christ and his bride is so, so important that it is possible for a church to grow cold towards him. It's possible for a church to tick all the boxes in every other sense and be a solid and you know, trustworthy and reliable church. But it's possible for that church to grow cold and for Jesus to say enough is enough. Now, I'm not saying that every church that's ever closed closed for that reason but I know many of them have. I grew up in a church for a few years in Bristol when I was a child, and uh, if we had the time now, we could get in a bus and we could drive there, and you'd see the same building, but you wouldn't recognize the language on the signs. It's a Quranic school now. Something shifted, something went significantly wrong for that church to cease being a church. And so here we are at Trinity, kind of early days, right? early doors, we're three years in, just over three years, and I think this this church is characterized by a lot of love, a lot of uh, love for Christ and love for one another, but it would be unrealistic to think that we're never going to be tempted to drift. We feel it individually, and the temptation is going to be there for us corporately to drift away from Christ. And so that warning is not kind of a threat to make us scared. It's a, it's a warning to say, look, this is how important it is that we keep the love of Christ as our focus. 
I suppose you could say that um, one of the things that we've done at Trinity since the start is to really emphasize the love of God. Even on our, uh, what's that called, a vision statement, all to be transformed by the glorious love of the Trinity. And some people might say, oh, that's a bit, you know, a bit of a fashionable thing. It's a bit of an emphasis that you're trying to sort of push some sort of little agenda. And I'd go to Revelation 2 and I'd say, no, 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 that's not a little anything. That's the big deal. The love of God and our response to that is everything. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, I can speak in the tongue of men and of angels and I can do miracles and I can move mountains and I can be uber impressive. But if I have not love, I'm nothing. And that's true for us too. We can have all the programs and all the ministries and all the, you know, the, the teaching and the theology and we can do everything well. But if we have not got love, we've got nothing. That's how important the love of God is. And that's why here at Trinity, we want to always emphasize it, always underline it, always flag it up because it's not a fashionable thing. It is what the Bible is pointing us to. So that was... Ephesus. That's what we looked at last week, this emphasis, this call back to a love relationship with Christ. We looked at it in life groups, and I think those of us that were there found that really stirring and challenging and encouraging. Now we're going to travel 35 miles north. Maybe we could put the map up on the screen. I forgot about that as well last week. I was so excited to preach Revelation 2 that I forgot quite a bit. So here's a map of Turkey, and we'll go to the next one, zoom in on those Churches, And you'll see Ephesus there. That's where we were looking at last week. 35 miles north, we're going to Smyrna for today's letter. Now, Smyrna is quite an interesting place for a number of reasons. It's the birthplace of Homer. Okay, the old one, not the recent one. All right, so Homer, he was born there. He died and was buried there. Smyrna was an incredibly wealthy city. It was a port where they exported myrrh. Myrrh was used for uh, the burial of dead people. It was used for medicine. It was used as a painkiller. And myrrh was being exported from Smyrna. And so this place was incredibly wealthy. It was um, a place where they had um, a history. And this is it's kind of a, a weird thing. But, but it was known as the Resurrection City. Because seven centuries before... There had been this huge earthquake and the place had been wiped out. And four centuries later, it was rebuilt. And so it was kind of a city that had come back from the dead, which is quite unusual in some ways. And so it was known as a resurrection city. It was known for its myrrh, which is like a burial gum, resin, that's, that's uh, used in that. And so all of, everything about this place kind of has the, sort of the theme of death about it. Right? It's a place that's come back from the dead. It's a place where they produce myrrh. I mean, this was a death city, and yet it was wealthy. It was thriving. It was doing great. But it was a tough place for Christians. It was the city that had the most Jews, the biggest Jewish population in the entire region. And the Jews who did not believe in Jesus were incredibly antagonistic towards the Christians. And so this letter focuses us in on the great theme of suffering and death. It's a very sobering letter, and we're going to look at it together uh, in just a moment. It, one other thing about it's, um, Smyrna, before I get rid of the map, it's the only one of the seven cities that's still a city today. It's called Izmir. It's, uh, I think, the second biggest city in Turkey. 
Okay, so all the others, you go to Ephesus, it's just marshland with some rubble in it. But Smyrna is still there. It's a thriving port city. So let's focus in on the subject of death. I suppose the, the thing for us as a, as a church is that we're fairly young, average, right? And uh, therefore, we, we're not the kind of church where we have to go through a lot of funerals and, and the sadness of losing people from our number. That will come eventually. But, but, but even so, we're in a culture that maybe is starting to think about death a little bit more than before. Traditionally, we hide it away. We, we don't like to talk about it. We use euphemisms to hide it. We don't like to see dead bodies. You know, we just kind of sanitize the whole thing. But actually, with the way things are going, we're starting to think about it a bit more, aren't we? The attack in London, the attack in Manchester, the attack in London. It just seems like there's a regularity, and I suspect there's more coming. They've thwarted others during that time, but there's probably more coming. And we're getting to a point where for the first time in my lifetime, it's getting scary to go into a big city. It's something that you might think about. I suppose in the past there were bombings in London when the whole Northern Irish thing was going, but I'm a bit young, so I'll pretend I don't remember that. But now, if you go to London or Manchester or who knows, Bristol, Birmingham, it maybe crosses your mind that I might not be safe here. Death has become part of our conversation. Did you notice in the news, maybe not, that a week before the last London bombing and attack, not bombing, the the last London attack on the bridge and then in the market there, that there was an attack on a bus in Egypt? They would have got a brief mention, probably, if at all. But a bus that was heading towards a Christian monastery with Coptic Christians in was attacked by a group of gunmen They took the people out, they killed the men, they killed children, they killed women, they stole phones and jewelry, and there was 50 people on the bus and at least 28 were killed because they were Christians. It's easy to watch the news and forget the fact that the terror attacks are are happening against the Christian West because we know that the majority of people aren't Christians in our country. But when you realize that there are attacks that are specifically focused, like on that bus in Egypt, on the people because they are Christians or because they go under the name of Christ, it's kind of sobering, isn't it? To realize that we're living our lives in this world with a target on us. And that's where the letter to Smyrna becomes so incredibly relevant to us. So let's turn to it and I'll read it to you. Page 1028, if you've got a church Bible, and who knows what page if you have your own. Uh, Go there and head right if there's anything you, any book other than Revelation, turn right and you'll get there eventually. So Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8. Just four verses. It says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Verse nine, 
Let's just jump straight into what Jesus says to this church. In most of the letters, he says, I know your deeds. But in this case, he goes straight to their sufferings. He says, I know. I know. I love the way that he says that. Isn't that powerful to think that Jesus knows what we're facing, what we're going through, whatever life is throwing us. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know the the pressure that you're under, the persecution that you're facing. Uh, The word tribulation uh, is a word we've taken from Latin. It's not the, the actual word that Paul, or sorry, John would have written in this place. But we've got the word tribulation from Latin, and it's actually a term that was used in reference to a type of, um, oh, what can you say? It's essentially a death sentence. It was a sort of a, a type of torture that they would use where there was a big sheet of, of wood laid across the body, and then weights were added to it. And the pressure just would build and build, and the person who was being punished in this way would be gasping for breath. And eventually the pressure would get too much, the ribs would go, and they were gone. It was all over. Sometimes we experience that, not in a literal sense, but just the pressures of life. When you're in a very intense situation, sometimes it's hard to breathe. Have you ever been there? Either in grief or in sadness or in guilt or in, uh, in, in whatever. That just that feeling of, I can barely take a breath. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. For the People here in Smyrna, in this letter, these Christians, they were a small group of people and they were suffering at the hands of these Jews. Jews who don't love Jesus. Actually, anyone who's religious but doesn't love Jesus can be incredibly antagonistic to people that do. It's true not just of other religions. It can happen even in church settings. In some churches, they're incredibly religious but there's not really much love for Christ there and they can be some of the most antagonistic settings for Christians. Jesus says, I know your persecution. I know what you're going through. And here we are sitting in a culture where so far the persecution is minimal. There's people in the world today that are facing it face to face literally every moment and we're sitting here in relative ease, but isn't it a comfort to know that Jesus knows? He knows about the Uh, many, many thousands, maybe up to a million Christians in North Korea being held in concentration camps simply for being Christian. He knows about the uh, difficulties in Nigeria and Sudan, across the Middle East, Iraq, Syria. He knows about the pressures on families and on Christians in this country when somebody turns to Christ and their whole family treats it as an affront against their culture. Jesus knows the pressure that we face and even if we don't face it quite yet he knows he knows and he cares he goes on to say not only does he know about the the persecution or the tribulation he says I know your poverty these Christians because they were living for Christ would have been suffering in terms of finances It would have been difficult for them to earn money and to to have the money they needed when the system was working against them. Jesus knows what it means to struggle financially. I suspect, again, that most of us haven't been financially persecuted. Maybe we have in some way, uh, but typically not so much yet. But maybe some of us have struggled with another month, another set of bills, and not knowing how to pay. No matter how you 
kind of massage the budget. It doesn't quite reach to cover everything that's needed. And then the washing machine goes, and then the car breaks down, and life tends to hit all at once, doesn't it? Jesus says, I know. I know the poverty that you're facing, the challenges of living when you don't feel like you have the means to live. Now again, that is going to be ramped up in a persecution context. For us, it's maybe relatively minor in terms of persecution, but financial stress is absolutely huge in our culture. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus says, I know your poverty, and yet you are rich. It's like a little, little reminder in the midst of it that, yeah, you're looking at your budget, you're doing the spreadsheet in first century Smyrna, and you're thinking... We need to, I need to do something to these figures because we're not going to make it, dear. And you're going through all of that, but Jesus says, and yet you're rich. I remember a conversation with our children a few years ago. It's funny, isn't it, how children have no concept of how much money things cost. And so we're having this chat, and one of them, I won't name who it was. In fact, I don't remember. One of them said, why don't we buy such and such? I said, we can't afford that. And then the question was, well, how much money do we have? Which, as a parent, you know, you never answer that because it's a lot of money in terms of sweets. It's not a lot of money in terms of bills, right? And so we sort of did the whole pretend pretend you're answering the question and don't answer it kind of dance that we do. And um, did that in reference to someone visiting today as well a couple of times. But we did that whole thing and, and the children said, well, so would you say we're rich or poor? I was like, well, if you say we're rich, then they're going to go, well, let's go shopping, you know. So, but you don't want to say we're poor because we're like in the richest 5% on the planet, all of us. And so we, we gave some kind of answer and they took it as me saying we're, we're poor. And they said, yeah, but we're rich in friends. And I was like, oh, how cool is that? How true is that? Yeah, financially, there may be a little bit of, of, of stress involved in life, but how rich we are in other ways. And Jesus is reminding these suffering Christians, yet yeah, you're rich. Think of all you've got in Christ. Think, you've all, think of all you've got uh, in terms of your, your, your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're rich in friends. We're rich in so many ways. But Jesus knows the stress of the finances. And the third thing he says is, I know the slander of those that say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I think that may be the toughest one of all to take, slander. You know, facing persecution, it is what it is, the difficulties and the pressures of that. I'm not saying that's easy in any sense. Financial pressures, they're really tough to take. But there's something about slander that can really tear you down, isn't there? When someone starts saying things about you that aren't true, when they start poisoning people against you, when they start affecting your relationship with others, when it feels like you've let somebody get close and suddenly they're punching you in the ribs, it can really, really hurt. And here is this group of Jews that were in the synagogue there and they were attacking the Christians They were slandering them. They were getting them in trouble with the Roman authorities. And and Jesus says, look, they're a synagogue of Satan. That's who they're working for. They're not on our side. They're not on God's side. They're Satan's side because of the way they're treating you. And he says, I know that. I know what you're facing. The pressures, the poverty, the slander. I know. And then you come to verse 10. 
Most of the letters in this sequence of seven letters kind of switch in the middle from, I know this stuff and you're doing great, but here's an issue. But not this church. This little struggling church in Smyrna with all of its difficulties doesn't get a rebuke, and I think that's probably good. Don't you love the fact that God is able to to know exactly what we can take, and there are times in our life when all he wants to do is hold us close because he knows that a rebuke would break us. And with this little church in Smyrna, he doesn't rebuke them. In fact, what he says to them is this, verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful. He says, look, you're going to go through some tough times. He's in charge of that. He knows what's coming. They're going to be thrown into prison. Uh, The devil's going to be testing them. This is going to be a really intense situation. And he's telling them in advance, and he's saying, don't fear that. Just be faithful. Just trust me. Keep your faith in me. Now, there's some people that you may uh, stumble across if you're uh, channel surfing who um, sound a bit Christian and like to tell you and wave their Bibles around that if you will trust Jesus, then everything will be fine. Look at them, they're perfect. All right? If you will just give to their ministry, they'll be fine, but so will you. And they like to tell you that it, all it takes is prayer. If you just pray, you'll get everything healed that you ever go through physically. If you just pray, it will sort all your financial worries out. If you just trust God, then everything will be great. And there's people that are pushing that. There's a reason they're on TV because they can afford the slots to do it. And they're pushing that kind of teaching. And it can sound so attractive. It can sound so, oh, I wish that were true. But it's not what the Bible says. Jesus never says, in this life, I will take away all your troubles. In this life, I will fix everything that's wrong with your body. In this life, I will make you rich and wealthy. Jesus says, in this life, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We will face difficulties. We need to be preparing ourselves as a church to face challenges in the future. We need to be preparing the next generation. They're not going to grow up in an easy Christian country like some of us did. We need to be preparing one another for the challenges that lay ahead. But know that Jesus knows what's coming. And all he does, all he asks of us is that we would continue to trust him, keep our gaze on him and and keep focused on him and, and not try to fix it ourselves, not try to escape it ourselves. Trust him, just be faithful. And you wish that he would say, yeah, you know, be faithful and all will be well. But he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. How many stories are we hearing around the world going right the way back to uh, the first major school shooting, the stories that came out. But in recent years, with a lot of the terrorist things, are you a Christian? Yes, dead. Happened in that school. It's happened multiple times since. Think about those men dressed in orange walking out by the sea and then being slaughtered because they were not willing to put their faith in another God. Jesus says, you be faithful. Whatever it takes, whether it's in the little stuff, whether it's day by day, whether it's at school when someone's you know, kind of winding you up, whether it's at work when someone puts you in a tight spot with a question, or whether it's on a bridge in London when someone's about to stick a knife into you, just be faithful and I will give you the crown of life. 
I've never faced that kind of situation. Um, the closest thing, uh, and this is slightly silly, so forgive me for that, but the closest thing, it felt serious at the time, was when I was about 11 or 12. I was in year seven at school, and there was this kid in my class, not in my class, in my school. He was about four years older, and for some reason, he decided that I was his next target. Now, that's pretty frightening when you're 11 and he's 15. Like He was strong, you know, and, and I thought, this is it. I'm, I'm in serious trouble. And I remember the fear that I was feeling, anticipating a beating from this other kid. I won't tell you his name in case he's on Facebook. But, but I remember going to my little Gideon New Testament. Remember those? I hope they still give those out. I had my Gideon New Testament. And in it, it had a section, like a, like a sort of table of contents, guide type thing, an index. And it said, where to find help when? And there was, uh, there was a list, and I went down the list, afraid. That's me right now. I looked it up. Where to find help when afraid? Hebrews 13, verse 6. So we say with confidence, God is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And my response as an 11-year-old, he can do a lot to me, God. He can punch me. He can punch me again. He can keep punching me. He could probably kick me. He might even, who knows. And I, I got carried away in my prayer. Like he could stab me. He could like throw a grenade at me. Like he could drive over me in a stolen car and I I kind of went through all these kind of hypotheticals because I was genuinely afraid and that verse just worked in my heart so we say with confidence God is my helper I will not be afraid what can man do to me and it was as if at a certain point in time that verse just exploded in my heart as I came to a realization this guy can kill me but what can he do to me And suddenly it was like waves of relief flooded over me. It was like, okay, yeah, he could kill me and I go to be with Jesus. How cool is that? And and like suddenly the the Bible came alive for me. That was one of the first moments I really got excited about the Bible because it was speaking into my life. Yeah, this kid could, he never did, he could attack me, he could kill me. But so what? If he kills me, I get to see Jesus sooner. It seems so silly now. It felt real at the time. And that's what Jesus is saying here to these people who are facing, in some cases, actual, literal, physical, not school threat, but actual, literal, physical death. And he's saying, just be faithful to me and I'll give you the crown of life. When you get to the end of the letter, verse 11, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I told you last week that I would prove to you that the one who conquers is us. All right, I want to do that just as we finish. The one who conquers, the overcomer. This is a promise in all of the letters to the one who overcomes, I will give. There's this promise, and it sounds a little bit like super Christians, doesn't it? You know, there's normal Christians who believe in Jesus and go to church and stuff. And then there's the super Christians, like the conquering ones, the ones that, you know, maybe face the lions and survive or will die or whatever. And, and, and it sounds like a, a category that we're not in, but I want to assure you that we are very much those who conquer. Let me just read you a couple of other verses. 1 John chapter 5. So this is written by the same guy that writes Revelation. He's using the same words. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, he says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. 
And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see what he's saying there? Who is it that overcomes the world? The one who has faith in Jesus. It's not super Christians, it's Christian Christians. It's our faith in Christ that means that we get to overcome the world. Let me take you to another passage really briefly. Romans chapter 8. And in Romans 8, Paul is talking about the love of Christ and what an amazing thing it is. And he gets towards the end and he's like, okay, if God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, nobody. And he says, okay, so if God gave us his son and his son died for us, how is he not going to give us everything that we need? And so who's going to attack us? Like who's going to condemn us? Who's going to bring a charge against us? And then he says, but hang on, no one, because Jesus died and he's alive and he's the one that defends us. So who, who has got a charge against us? And then it says, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Is there anything that can come in and separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let me give you an illustration and then I'll bring it right back to Smyrna to to finish this up. I don't normally tell you what the word in the Greek is, but I'm going to break my own rule just for for once here. The word overcome or conquer is a word you hear all the time in English, Nike. All right, it's been transliterated and brought over. Okay, so in honor of someone visiting from near Beaverton, Oregon, where Nike is headquartered, Nike is the word that we've got here. Okay, so Nikes, the victors, the victory ones. We are the Nike crowd, all right, because of what? because of our faith in Jesus. And then you come to Romans 8, and it says not just we are conquerors, it says we are more than conquerors. I love that, because you know what that is? Effectively, in the Greek, that's hyper-Nikes. That's like the coolest shoe ever, right? The hyper-Nikes. They must be way over 100 pounds. The hyper-Nikes. What it means is that we're not just the ones who conquer, but we're the ones who participate in the victory without doing the work. I, I was in Manchester 24 years ago for a historic moment. I I happened to have booked tickets for a football match a few weeks ahead of time and I didn't realize that it was as historic as it was. But the day I arrived was the day when uh, the team that I was watching, and I won't tell you which one it was except they won a trophy back then so they're not in blue. So I was there on the day when they won the, the English Championship, the Premier League. It was the first time in 26 years. It was incredible. And I was there with 50,000 other people and across the world there were millions of people who would have said the same thing. We did it. Now technically, non-football fans always say, no, you didn't. And then they don't understand it's a tribal thing, but we did. We, we won it, okay? I paid a little bit of money. We won it. But reality is, it had nothing to do with what I'd done. It was those players, Schmeichel and Giggs and Robson and Bruce and Pallister and it was them they'd done the work it was the manager Ferguson he'd done the work they were the conquerors they had faced every opposition and they had defeated them all and 50,000 of us got to stand there and sing we are the champions 
and Queen was blasting and we were singing and maybe crying and it was an incredible, incredible day. We, the team, were the conquerors. We, the fans, were the more than conquerors. We were the hyper Nikes, right? We were the ones that got to celebrate and revel in the victory that somebody else had won. That's what we are as Christians. If, that's, if that was the, the moving privilege that I had in May 1993, how much more is that our privilege every single Sunday here? To come together and we sing not just to, to tell God that we love him, we also sing to celebrate and to declare that the victory has been won and we are entering into it. Not because of anything we've done, it was all him. Jesus died and he rose again. That's the description in verse eight, isn't it? Jesus, the first and the last, the one who was dead and is alive, the real resurrection one. And Jesus says to the church, look, you're, you're gonna face suffering. You're gonna be put in prison. It's gonna go on like 10 days, which is a relatively short time. It's not gonna go on forever, but you're gonna suffer and some of you are gonna die. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And then... To the one who overcomes, what does it say right at the end? To the conqueror, you will not be hurt by the second death. You're a hyper Nike, you're a, you're a more than victor. Jesus has entered into death, he has conquered death, and he is alive. He wasn't just like resuscitated in order to die again. Like when Jesus walked out of the grave, he walked out and death was defeated. And what that means is that those who are with him, those who are in his entourage, those who are cheering his bus as it drives through the town, we, Christians, are not facing the second death. Now, what's the second death? In Revelation, four times it refers to the second death. Here, and then at the end. And I'd encourage you to read it. Read the whole thing. Like we said last week, you'll be blessed. But when you get to the end, chapter 20, 21, it talks about the dead being brought to stand before God. It talks about the great judgment to come and the books that are opened and, and there's books that list everything everyone's ever done and there's a book of life. And that's what everybody is gonna face eventually. And if your name is not found in the book of life, then you're judged according to what you've done. That's frightening. And so having already died, you're then standing before God. And if you've never trusted Christ, your life is evaluated based on your faith or lack of it in Christ. And then according to your works, you're judged and you're given what you deserve. And that is called the second death. It's described as being thrown into a lake of fire. That's biblical language for hell. God's not going to send anyone to hell that's desperately wanting to trust Jesus and be with him. He's going to send people to hell who don't want anything to do with him, that are not prepared to associate with him in any way, who refuse to wear the team colors, who refuse to celebrate the victory Jesus has had. But it's a sobering thought, isn't it? To think that thousands, millions of people are going to stand before God and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's the second death. That's the ultimate death. Whether you're a Christian or not, unless Jesus comes first, you're gonna die. This life's gonna come to an end somehow. But if you trust Jesus, then you get to be part of the resurrection. You get to live forever with him and the second death cannot touch you. 
That's the hope that we have. And it's not based on anything that we've done and it's not based on any work of ours. We can't earn it, we can't fight it, we can't you know, resist or whatever. There's nothing we can do because we're not those who are the victors in our own right. We are the more than victors. We're the overcomers who enter into the victory that Jesus has won. Which is why we celebrate every Sunday who Jesus is and what he's done. He died and he is alive which means that whatever we may face, no matter how tough things may get, whatever we have to go through, death can't touch us. Oh, it can hurt and it can kill us in this life, but the second death, it can't touch us because we're more than conquerors. We're not gonna be touched by the second death. We're gonna have life forever because of who he is and because of what he's done. How cool is that? What a comfort that is. Even if we're living comfortable lives at this point, at some point, every one of us is gonna stare death in the face. At some point, a diagnosis or an accident or something's gonna happen, and whether we have warning or not, there's gonna come a point in time, unless Jesus comes first, where we're gonna face death. And I don't want a show of hands here, but I'll be honest and say I'm not eager. I'm not like a fan of the death bit. And yet we can face death because it's a defeated enemy. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of sin is death and so on. And he goes on, he's saying, look, Jesus has conquered death and so we are gonna be raised with him and that changes everything. And that's what we're celebrating. That's what we're thinking about today. In our little town, in our little lives, with our relatively little struggles, and for some of us, some quite big struggles, Jesus knows. He knows what we're facing. He knows how loud it's going to get. He knows how hard the pressure is going to become. He even knows what it's going to take to finish us off physically in this world. But he also knows that death has no grip on us because he has already conquered it. Death is lying dead to the side because Jesus has won the battle. We are more than conquerors. Second death cannot touch us and therefore we can live. Not just forever, but now. We can live even when people persecute, even when poverty squeezes us tight, even when people are slandering us. We can live faithfully for him because of what he's done for us.